how liberty dies. Listening to Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause. I'm Scott with Uncle Ian. We are talking dictators. Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause is a podcast obsessed with history's greatest dictators. We have created a knockout competition to determine the single most significant dictator of all time. Each episode features a matchup of two dictators where we discuss the life and times of each leader. The loser of each battle is eliminated from the tournament. The winner remains in the contest to be named history's biggest dictator. Uncle Ian, tell us about the origins of the term dictator. Thanks, Scott. It's a Latin word. It was originally used by the uh, the Romans in approximately 500 BC. Prior to that, Romans had had a royal system after they uh, got rid of their uh, kings for um, ironically, taking too much power, they came up with the consul system whereby they elected two leaders every year. Um, but they also built in a an extra component to their constitution, and that was in times of emergency that they could appoint a senior magistrate to be literally a dictator. And that would be, for example, if they were being if Italy was being invaded by by the Gauls. Um, which happened a lot in the early years of uh, early years of the Roman Empire until they uh, until they expanded. Um, the word the word itself um, has the uh, same derivation as the word dictation. So something which is spoken, something which is uh, ordered, something which is prescribed. Um, and so a dictator was someone who issued issued orders or um, spoke about what he wanted to happen. I say he because in Roman terms, it was always a he. Yeah, and so a dictator is he who dictates. Correct. Between 500 BC and 200 BC, uh, Rome had a lot of emergencies. Um, so there were dozens and dozens of dictators appointed. Mostly they were generals. Um, sometimes they were leading religious figures if there were particular ceremonies that needed to happen. Sometimes they were senior legal magistrates if there was a particular legal issue that needed to be sorted out in the Roman courts. They would appoint a dictator. The key thing about the Roman dictatorship is that it was for a fixed term. So they might appoint a dictator for a period of three months or six months, after which the dictator would step down, having hopefully done his job, and the, the, the two consuls would resume their their rule. And, and the uh, dictator the Romans, would go back to just being a, a general in, in the army. Yes, exactly. Or in some cases, um, back to the retirement farm um, right. from which he'd been uh, from which he'd been summoned. Um, there's a number of instances where that occurred. So to the Romans, at least at first, the word dictator was a positive thing. So it had no they, negative connotations. It's just like, we're in a bit of trouble. We need a dictator. Here he is. And it doesn't have yep, the negative we, connotations that it does now. That's correct. And it was a situation where, oh, we need one person to hold supreme power, not get mixed up in the bureaucracy and the paperwork and the red tape. So we'll make that appointment. When I say we, the Roman Senate would make that appointment and uh, that person would then wield supreme power in the context of whatever the emergency was. People who became dictators, yeah, had mainly come from a military background, but not always. Sometimes they come from a legal or religious background. Um, and while Julius Caesar is the best known, 
um, dictator. He wasn't the first. Ironically, he was the last of the dictators to actually have that title. And, and we'll look at that as we um, track through the life and times of Julius Caesar himself. That leads nicely into our contenders here. We mentioned Benito Mussolini, but first we must get to the man, Julius Caesar. Uncle Ian, please tell us about Mr. Julius Caesar. Thank you, Scott. His full name was Gaius Julius Caesar. Um, however, so many Roman men were named Gaius that it did start to limit its usefulness. So he is known to history as Julius Caesar. Like Greeks uh, being referred to as Nick. Correct. <laughs> Uh, if not then, certainly now, yes. So Julius Caesar lived in the first century BC. So um, the closest approximation of his birth date was the year 100 BC. Um, he was born in Rome. His family was reasonably well off. His father had actually served as a Roman governor in the uh, Asian provinces. Uh, Caesar did have a good education and did have opportunities to advance himself in Roman society. One of the most important things to think about as we look at Caesar's life is that he wasn't just a soldier. He was much more than much more than a soldier and, and we'll look at examples of that. He uh, married young, married in the year 84. Apparently he did like women but also quite liked men. Yes um, and didn't have the stigma that it subsequently subsequently took on and so yes a number of the sources do mention that Caesar had relationships with people of both genders he was he was married certainly he was attracted to women that that wasn't in doubt um, but yes there are a number of stories around him having male lovers as well and in in Roman terms that was not out of the ordinary and in fact, a number of the emperors after Augustus were were that way inclined as well. If so. I have read that in ancient Rome, it, sleeping with a man, as you say, not frowned upon. But it depends in which position you're in. Correct. Any shame was more attached to someone who was in a submissive role. Yeah. But certainly there's enough evidence for us to be to understand that, yes, Caesar was inclined both ways. He um, married in the year 84 and had a daughter named uh, named Julia, being part of the Julian clan. That was uh, Women in um, ancient Rome did not even have first names, so they just adopted the name of that clan. So he, she was Julia and known as Julia and didn't have a first name. That's, that's right. Um, the names were more, I guess, imposed by the, the, the family background rather than... Um, being given a name by the parents like we'd, like we'd be more used to. He uh, had delusions of grandeur from a very early age. Um, he uh, refashioned his family tree to enable himself to claim that he was descended from the Trojan War veteran named Aeneas. How, how do you refashion your family tree? Is that just making stuff up? It did involve supposed <laughs> research in, uh, in Troy... And in uh, and and among some of the pre-first century historians, there might have been a bit of bribery there, although the sources aren't clear on that. But uh, he certainly claimed he was descended from Aeneas, um, been uh, involved in the Trojan War, and he also claimed that he had that he was descended from the goddess of Venus. Now, <laughs> Venus was the goddess of many things, including love, beauty, and victory. So he did certainly claim a, a quite outstanding heritage as he started to establish himself in Roman society. The Roman Republic into which he was born had been in existence for approximately 400 years since the, the removal of the, the, the kings in approximately 500 BC. But the Republic was starting to show signs of cracking the divisions between the classes. In the years prior to the birth of Caesar, some of the uh, 
appointed officers, they were known as magistrates, attempted land reforms to make, make the, the land grants a lot fairer. Following that, there was a civil war between armies led by Marius and by Sulla. Now, Marius was married to Caesar's aunt, confusingly also called Julia, um, and Marius had been a, a great general on behalf of Rome before he got involved with the um, with this particular civil war. After Marius died, Sulla then took over the role of dictator, and he did that from a legal perspective because he wanted to rewrite a lot of the land reforms, and he wanted to also rewrite the class descriptions of who was eligible for the Senate and who was eligible for the chief officers in Rome, who could be elected consul, who could be elected tribune, um, who could be elected as praetor. Those other roles were about um, making sure that the city ran smoothly. Um, so they were like local mayors or local ministers. And Caesar and got himself into a bit of trouble with Sulla, didn't he? He did, and part of that was because of his family background at because he was um, descended from venus uh, i think that claim probably gave <laughs> Sulla a bit of an insight that caesar had uh, ambition but the fact that he was part of marius's family certainly didn't help in his early 20s caesar joined the army and he ended up serving in the eastern part of the empire um, in areas that we'd now we'd now call um, around Syria and the Holy Land. And part of the reason he joined the army was to distance himself from Sulla. Physically distance himself. Yes, yes, that's right. Sulla died in the year 78, and uh, once Caesar got that news, he deemed it was safe to return to Rome. Um, ironically, in the year 67, remember we're still in BC, he married the granddaughter of Sulla. Um, his previous wife had, uh, had passed away. Uh, one of the great ironies around this time, by which time Caesar was in a was in his early 30s is that on a visit to Spain he saw a statue of Alexander the Great. Uh, Alexander the Great died at the age of 33 and Caesar was inspired in a way by the fact that Alexander had, had achieved so much at a young age and Caesar at that stage determined that his life would be one of achievement as well. Didn't, didn't uh, he cry when he saw the statue because, because Alexander the Great had already achieved so much by his age? Yes. Yeah, that's um, a couple of the sources do say that, that he was actually quite upset because he wasn't able to compare himself favourably with Alexander. So in some ways that made him more determined to um, become a... Well, I, I use the term all-rounder. Caesar after that was very busy in trying to get himself elected to a lot of different offices in Roman life. For example, in the year 63, he was elected Pontifex Maximus, which we would know as the chief high priest. Um, and... He remained in that role for the rest of his life, even when he wasn't even in Rome. In the year 61, he was appointed governor of Spain. Um, now governorships in Roman terms were usually um, for a set period of time, three, four, five years. And the attraction of becoming a governor is that um, you could actually get quite rich because you were in charge of the tax collection of the provincials. Um, so it was an opportunity to... Uh, make a lot of cash um, and for some parts of the empire um, it was also an opportunity to conquer the adjoining lands um, and exact tribute from those adjoining lands and, and we'll see an example shortly there's a another sign of his aspirations um, that came from his time in spain when he was in spain in a small mountainous town one of his um officers said to him oh could you imagine could you imagine living here? And, you know, do you think there's any politics that go on in this these small towns? And Caesar said, I would rather be 
the first man here than the second man in Rome. He's yes. just outlying outlying that he wants to be number one. He doesn't even care where it is. He just wants he wants to be number one. That's all he cares about. Yes, that's supported by all the sources. That particular quote, and he lived up to that in his first term as consul. So remembering that consul was one of the two equal leaders elected annually, and there were strict rules in place as to how you could become a candidate for the consulship. You had to have served certain uh, terms in some of the other um, officers or magistracy roles. Um, So in the year 59, he became consul. Uh, After his term as consul, he was then appointed governor of Gaul. when when we talk about Gaul, as the Romans called it, we're talking about modern France. And it's in Gaul where that's where the party starts, isn't it? That's where the action happens. Very much so. He served two terms as governor there. He managed to push the frontiers of the empire to the north and even made an attempt to push the frontiers of the empire across the English Channel. During his time in Gaul, um, he uh, managed to subdue all of the all of the tribes in Gaul and even push as far as modern day modern day Belgium. I, I like thinking about Caesar in the context of that saying that history is written by the victors. Caesar proved himself to be quite an author with his uh, with his history of the Gallic Wars, um, which ran to a number of volumes. And certainly he didn't uh, he didn't shy away from emphasising his own role the victories over the Gallic tribes as part of expanding the empire. Expansion of the empire in those days meant not only more tribute from the places that they conquered, um, but also a larger workforce, uh, because if you got conquered by the Romans, there was a good chance that you were going to become a slave um, to be sold, um, and the uh, the governor gets even richer. My favourite thing about his writings on the Gallic Wars is how he writes in the third person about himself. Yes. And it's Caesar made an excellent decision to do this. Caesar seized the opportunity to do that. And it's it's like, mate, you're right in this. It sounds ridiculous, but it does give an effect. You kind of see Caesar as this great man. He's telling you that he is. It does make it look more objective than it did as if he was writing in the first person. And that was commented on at the time by people in Rome that... uh, he was obviously writing it in this way to make himself appear more, not just more heroic, but more considered, plus more devoted to the, the, the service of Rome, um, rather than self-serving, hmm. um, as a lot of people subsequently saw him to be. During his time in Gaul, one of the things that he continued to get upset about was the influence of the Druid religion, especially in the northern part of Gaul. And after um, making inquiries, he realised that the Druid religion was actually coming from Britain uh, or Britannia, as the Romans called it, which was at that stage separate from Rome. It hadn't yet been conquered. So in the year 55 and then again in the year 54, he took troops across the channel to attempt to conquer Britain, but the Britons were able to outlast his attempts to conquer them. Um, It was a bit of a stretch for the supply lines, um, and so the conquest of Britain was going to have to wait for approximately 100 years before Britannia became a Roman province. Caesar had certainly shown the way and identified that until Britain was a Roman province that they would still have an impact on the ability of, of Rome to rule Gaul in a in a confident manner. Caesar's expedition to Britain was still seen as a triumph 
because Britain was seen as this mysterious land far, far away, and even going there was considered the bravest thing anyone had ever done. Oh, yeah, it was quite an achievement, um, if only because, you're right, it was uncharted territory for, as far as the Romans were concerned. So they learnt a lot. A hundred years later, the Emperor Claudius and his commanders did make use of Caesar's uh, records as far as the, the maps that he'd made and the, the barricades that he'd planned as uh, as they um, landed in what we'd now call southeast England. It, it did pay off, just certainly didn't pay off in Caesar's lifetime. It's probably worth mentioning that for the Romans, the known world was the Mediterranean. They would know much more about uh, Lebanon, Egypt, Turkey, all those countries that border the Mediterranean Sea, than they would have even about Belgium, Germany, Gaul. Because, yeah, very much so. Because to get to those places, you have to go via land, um, which is a lot harder than going in those days than going by ship. And there's a big stretch of mountains called the Alps in the way as well. Yes. So, so anything over, the, over there on that side of the mountains is um is considered strange territory and foreign lands that imagery of the the crazy tribes exaggerated in britain oh yeah very much so uh, the romans knew there were places called there was a place called india because they knew people who knew people who traded with it but they realized that even the great alexander had not got that far close but not quite not got that far uh, and so um they uh it's one of the reasons why they concentrated on the lands around the Mediterranean, and then were able to push north and south from there as they built up the as they built up the empire. The sort of battles he's fighting in Gaul, he's proving himself to be an excellent leader. He sleeps in the same sort of lodgings his men does, and eats their food rather than doing the usual general thing of I'm going to you know sleep in my own tent and get the fancy yep. food. He and he starts learning all the soldiers' names, and you know there's thousands of soldiers, but he does his best to learn their names, and they all absolutely love him. And the battles he's fighting are absolutely humongous. One of the early battles he fights in Gaul is the Battle of Bibracte, which on the first day of fighting killed a hundred thousand people. Now that's more than the first day of the Battle of the Somme in World yes. War One, and that's without machine guns. Now, that's just a lot of spearing going on. If you're not getting speed, at the end of it, you've at least got a sore arm from all the spear throwing. It's just <laughs> incredible. How, they ma- yeah. how did they manage that? Yeah, I know. The toll, the, the, the toll was phenomenal. And as you say, that's primarily the result of single combat. It gives you an idea of the scale of the ambition of Rome and the determination of the, the conquered people to, to try and keep the lands for themselves. And that, that death toll is a massive proportion of the Gallic population at the time. The other really funny thing that he did, I don't know about funny, but very much fits into our dictator theme. And there's this tribe that's giving him grief called the Eberones. He chases them around everywhere. He can't find them. So he says, okay, he makes a declaration as governor. Anybody who wants these people's land can have it. All you got to do is go go get it. And if you kill one of these people, then that's fine. And all the tribes in the area just go in, take all the land, kill all the Eberones, and Caesar solves his problem without having to do anything himself. It's the smartest thing. Yes, it's a bit like, for those that are familiar with the great, uh, the great Tom Sawyer, um, with the whitewashing of the fence. Yes, that's exactly it. <laughs> How he gets other people to do that for him. So at the end of his term in Gaul, he wants to uh, return to Rome and wants to gain high office in Rome. And there's another civil war because Magnus Pompey, or Pompey the Great, 
also wanted to be supreme in Rome at the same time. They'd been rivals for a while, tried to patch it up with a marriage alliance, as happened in Roman times. Pompey married Caesar's daughter Julia. Unfortunately, she died while Caesar was in Britain, so that uh, that broke up the marriage alliance. Part of uh, the next, I guess, legendary component of Caesar's life was his return to Rome from Gaul. And there's a, uh, a stream in northern Italy uh, called the Rubicon, and there was a rule that said uh, you are not allowed to cross the Rubicon if you have an army with you. That was designed so that you couldn't bring your army into Rome for the purpose of conquering Rome. Because in those days, you mentioned about the familiarity that Caesar had with the soldiers. Um, the soldiers were, were not just Roman soldiers, they were Caesar's soldiers. So they very much followed Caesar wherever he wanted to go, wherever he wanted to take them, because he he would ensure they got paid, he would ensure they got fed, um, he would ensure they got land grants from the conquered areas. So the loyalty was to the commander rather than to Rome itself. So in the year 49, um, Caesar was determined to head back to Rome, um, but because of the, the the civil war, he decided that he would bring the army with him, um, and so. That saying, crossing the Rubicon, is one that we still use today about you've committed yourself. You're like It's like a point of no return. And subsequently, Pompey headed to Egypt. And Egypt at that time was jointly ruled by brother and sister, Ptolemy and Cleopatra. Ironically, um, descended from um, one of Alexander's generals who'd obtained Egypt after the death of Alexander. And when Caesar got to Egypt in terms of pursuing Pompey, he found out that the Egyptians had taken it upon themselves to kill Pompey and presented Caesar with the head of Pompey, thinking that would please him. But in fact, Caesar was horrified because he did not see they had the right to kill a Roman general, even though that Roman general was Caesar's enemy. And Pompey was, was a distinguished general. No, very much so. Very much so. Um, so to, um, he did not see that the Egyptians had any right to interfere um, with the, the Roman civil war, even though they were trying to curry favour with Caesar. Caesar subsequently uh, brought um, Egypt into the Roman fold. Um, he and Cleopatra had a son, um, and uh, Caesar subsequently returned to Rome. In the year 48, remember we're still in BC, in the year 48, the Senate appointed him dictator because some of Pompey's troops were still um, wanting to carry on the civil war. Um, including two of the sons of Pompey. Um, Caesar eventually tracked them down in Spain um, and uh, took care of them. Uh, the dictatorship uh, that was originally granted to him in the year 48, the Senate kept extending it. Um, and by the year start of the year 44, um, in the month of February 19, uh, BC 44, the Senate appointed Caesar dictator for life. And And then he starts wearing, like royal type clothes yes yeah uh, as if he was getting accustomed to appearing that way one of the terms that we haven't talked about in the context of dictator is the term master of the horse um, which is like a 2ic role caesar's master of the horse was his uh, loyal friend mark antony and at one stage after caesar had been appointed dictator mark antony publicly offered caesar a, a diadem which we would call a crown but he refused it and there are uh, a couple of the sources claim that this was a setup so that he could be um, seen to be refusing the crown that he'd asked Mark Antony to offer it to him 
but had uh, indicated that he wouldn't accept it. Oh, because he knew that the the Romans were so opposed to monarchy. Yes. Even though he was really a king in all but name. But it can't, That's he exactly could, right. He yeah, could yeah. pretend that he could... He pretend he was t- refusing the crown. That's good PR. That's I like that. That's, That's good. That. That's correct. And so, um, dictator for life, February 44, um, a number of uh, Roman uh, Roman senators really came to the conclusion that he was far too king-like for their liking and so determined that uh, um, they would save the Republic by, by killing the dictator. Um, and... Uh, his uh, his death in March of 44 is uh, is quite well known, and, and Shakespeare gets a lot of the credit for that. In terms of the stories of his death, one of the sources actually says that uh, he had heard about the plot, um, but realised that if he was uh, if he was going to be um, killed, um, then being killed um, in the in the Senate building um, would be a determination of his everlasting fame. Two thousand years later, I guess we're proving him right. Did it for his reputation. Yeah, wow. Well, At least committed. one of the sources claims that he um, quite possibly uh, had a feeling he didn't have didn't have bodyguards. He could have been uh, could have been at risk at any time. Technically, um, as dictator, um, he was under the he was a protected species. I guess we'd call it today, in the sense that harming a Roman magistrate, especially a dictator was was an offence but, but the, if the entire senate is in on it then it's hard i mean who who's going to prosecute them yeah well you're right there were a large number of conspirators and a number of them were able to get away although not all and it's one of the i guess fascinating things about caesar in terms of what happened next um, the, the great irony being that the conspirators in trying to preserve the Republic, in fact, signed its death warrant. When Caesar's will was read out, he had um, adopted his his great-nephew, um, who at that time had the name Octavianus. The great-nephew and Mark Antony then became allies against the key conspirators Brutus and Cassius, and they arranged... Um, and it sounds a bit funny in our terms, but it was quite a regular concept in, in Roman times. They arranged for Caesar to be deified. So in the year 42, Julius Caesar posthumously became a god. That's incredible. I like that. Being a king would be too much. I'll just settle for being a god. Uh, yes. Um, the great advantage that had for Octavianus meant that he, he was then the son of a god, having been adopted by a god. So that gave him some, some pretty strong cred. Even uh, even though at that stage he was still in his very early twenties, yeah. so Caesar's gamble in order to bolster his reputation, allow himself to be killed in the Senate, really paid off for him. Well, in terms of his reputation and his family's position in Rome, um, yes, very much so. So the armies of Antony and Octavian met the armies of Brutus and Cassius in the year forty-two at a place called Philippi, which is in eastern Greece. They were victorious. Brutus and Cassius didn't survive that battle. And after after that, Antony and Octavian, um, Octavian soon to be known to history as Augustus, Antony and Octavian had an un- uneasy alliance for a while. They again tried to cement that alliance with a uh, marriage. Um, Mark Antony married Octavian's sister, but then Mark Antony went to Egypt and he and Cleopatra 
formed an alliance against uh, Augustus and his general Agrippa, and that was only ever going to end in war. And that war happened at the Battle of Actium in the year 31. And after losing that battle, Antony and Cleopatra killed themselves. Within a couple of years, Augustus had cemented supreme power. However, he wasn't going to call himself dictator, didn't want to call himself emperor. The word emperor comes from the Latin word imperator as a, a senior general. So Augustus chose the word princeps. And the best translation of the word princeps is first among equals. He was in a, a senior role in the Senate, but he wasn't wasn't wanting to be seen as wielding supreme power. Um, so again, another ploy of looking like he's turning down the crown, but really he is in, in control. He was very much in control, and Augustus ruled as as princeps, or in modern terms we we do use the term emperor, from the year twenty seven BC all the way through to AD 14. Quite a lengthy rule, and his descendants established a dynasty which went on to rule Rome for a number of generations. So Augustus is the first emperor, which makes Caesar the last ever dictator. Yes. Brutus and Cassius always wanted to restore the Republic, um, but uh, Antony and uh, Octavian, as he then was, were more conscious of the fact that the, after everything that had happened, the civil wars between Marius and Sulla and the land reforms prior to that, that the days of the Republic were over. Um, supposedly, Augustus always said that he wanted to hand supreme power back to the Senate and that he would just retire, um, but he never quite got around to it. <laughs> he was busy that day. He was indeed busy that day. Some things that we remember about Julius Caesar. He... Uh, had a very famous quote of which most people would have heard Vaini Vidi Vici I came I saw I conquered that was his report back to the Senate from the Battle of Pontus in the year 47 one of the uh, one of the campaigns that he that he fought with his army after leaving Egypt but while he was um, consul and also while he was dictator Caesar did achieve a lot he instigated a reform of the calendar which is why even today we talk about the Julian calendar and July being named after him. That's correct. Um, and in Roman terms, the year used to start in March because that was spring when the when the weather started getting warm again. So the Latin month July had originally been this the uh, a shorter month, but when Julius decided to name that month after himself, he wanted it to be a thirty-one day month, so they took <laughs> the day off February. February was the last month of the year back in those days. That's fantastic. Um, That's so yeah. good. And then um, in in line with that, Augustus wanted to name a month after himself. So similarly, he picked on the month that we know now as August and took another day off February. That's why February is so short, um, so that July and August could both be 31-day months. Is February named after someone they don't like? Does February owe them money or something? No, I don't, I don't believe so. I'm just uh, saying that my birthday's in February, so that's why I'm getting upset. No, that's a, it looks a valid, it's a valid question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll, um, we, can, we can talk separately about <laughs> the, the names of all the months, if you like. <laughs> no, we, no, we are getting off topic. <laughs> um, so what are some of the other things for which we remember Caesar? Um, apart from the um, calendar reform, a lot of public works... Uh, roads, aqueducts, 
Rome at that stage wasn't on the seaside, so they were um, trying to build a port at Ostia to have more reliable grain and corn deliveries. Um, so Caesar instigated um, those public works. Because more and, grain means more pasta. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. And Rome was very much an importer of food, which made Egypt so crucial. And in fact, subsequently, during the empire, generals were not allowed to take an army into Egypt. Um, Egypt was very much the emperor's domain because it was so fertile, which is why they were very keen to have it as a have it as a province. Caesar also instigated uh, land reform for his army veterans. He did stand by his soldiers, um, and so um, he was able to reward his soldiers with uh, with land grants, not just throughout uh, the Italian peninsula, um, but throughout throughout Gaul and Spain as well. What's interesting about Caesar is, in terms of politics, he's he's what we would now call a, a populist. He has all these policies that are very popular with the people, and and a lot of the kind of the rich people aren't happy about it, and the the political establishment aren't happy about it. Certain crazy ideas like the right to a trial for mm. for an accused man and the land reforms. Very, we we mentioned his accounts of the Gallic Wars, all written in accessible language so that they could be read by the people, not just the, the senators he's also trying to impress. And and you're right, that did make him um, very much a man of the people. All this time, he was still the chief high priest um, as well, so that, that position was something that the Romans respected. He'd also been a, a lawyer, an advocate in the courts, um, as well as his success as a general. So quite an all-rounder. That's one of the reasons why his name lived on into the 20th century because his surname was the origin of the term Kaiser and also of the term Tsar um, and also of the term Shah. So as recently as 1979, there was a Shah on the throne of Iran. So Caesar's name was living on through those, uh, through those officers in, in Germany, in Russia and in Iran, respectively. That's very impressive. We're recording this podcast in Australia and the current Prime Minister is called ScoMo. Imagine in 2,000 years' time some Iranian is calling himself the ScoMo of Iran. It's just unthinkable. (laughs) (laughs) It's just 2,000 years later, they're still using his name to convey power and position. Yes. Yeah, and that shows that those countries wanted to have not just the aura of Rome, but the aura of Julius Caesar himself. Um, And uh, while the subsequent rulers of Rome went by their own own names, Augustus and and, and Claudius and Marcus Aurelius and Diocletian, etc., the the term Caesar became their title and they usually incorporated it into their names so that they could again have the, the aura of of Caesar with his uh, with his success as a general and with his religious and and legal roles as well. There's a lot more I can add. <laughs> However, a... in the context of what we're doing, um, I've meant. I'll, as a final word, I'll mention one of my uh, one of my fun facts. Oh, very about, good about Julius Caesar. It's always fascinated me that the uh, the Cleopatra movie that was made in the early 60s, uh, the early 1960s was Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton had Rex Harrison in the uh, Julius Caesar role and the Roman word for king was Rex. That's good. So I, like I always that. found that quite ironic in the context of that 
that particular movie, given that um, Caesar was a, a, a king who didn't want to be known as a king. And, and because other people thought he was the king, then they decided they should kill him. And now it's time to introduce our second contender up against Julius Caesar. We have Benito Mussolini. Now, Benito Mussolini was born on the 29th of July, 1883, to a socialist mother and a... Sorry, let me start that again. <laughs> Got that backwards. Benito I thought you were going to say his mother was a blacksmith. For <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. Benito Mussolini was born on the 29th of July, 1883, to a socialist father and a very Catholic mother. He was a very unruly child. When he was eight years old, his mother sent him to Catholic school. But the, the Catholic nuns, they knew that he was the son of a socialist and the socialists and the Catholics didn't get on very well. So the nuns used to withhold food from him, from Mussolini, and make Mussolini sleep in a dog kennel. I mean, that's pretty harsh. I would become a fascist too if that happened to me. He was eventually expelled. He stabbed another child in the hand with a knife and then eventually got into a fight with one of the monks at the school. So then he was kicked out, went to a different school, eventually finished school and became a teacher. He didn't like teaching. He became a, and then became a manual laborer and then worked as a socialist journalist. He inherited his socialist politics from his father. He used to take him to the pub and they would discuss socialism and, and, and the politics of the day. In his writings as a journalist, he was always in favour of redistribution of money to the working man, the usual socialist policies. He was very opposed to the monarchy and very opposed to, to religion, particularly Catholicism. And during that time, he slept with many women and got in many fights mostly with the husbands of the women he was sleeping with. <laughs> he even at that time slept with the woman who became the Queen of Italy, the, the Princess of Piedmont. His writings got him his writings got him um, poached by the leading socialist newspaper and he became editor of this newspaper and took their distribution from 20,000 to 100,000. His, his writings and his journalism was electrifying it. People couldn't get enough of it. But over time, his socialist views were beginning to change. He became pro-war and this this was not in keeping with the socialist doctrine because the the socialists want equality of men all over the globe and they see war as the tool of the bourgeoisie to pit one working man against another working man of a different country but Mussolini was an aggressive young man he was also a nationalist he believed and worked to create a great Italy and the he felt that the only way to achieve that was through war and was through empire so he started to write articles in favor of joining world war one so he was eventually fired from that paper for his writings in 1914 and so he joined the army he kept talking about how great war is and now he joins the army and he actually distinguished himself in the army but eventually he was blown up by a grenade accidentally by one of his italian comrades which is the most Italian thing I've ever heard. Yeah, that was during a training exercise of some sort, wasn't it? Yeah, and so he became a corporal, like um, like Adolf, he became a corporal, um, but then was was sent home with it, with his injuries because he sustained very severe injuries. His views had really changed by this point. He, it became hyper-nationalistic, and his ideas about masculinity and the importance of men being fighters really pushed him into this sort of warlike mindset. And he decided he wants to recreate the great Roman Empire. And so he, he wants to be like Caesar and Augustus. He saw empire as necessary, not just for materials, but also for prestige. 
he, he felt that he couldn't compete with Britain and France without an empire. And to an extent, that's actually true. He also dropped the egalitarianism of socialism. He kind of picked up Darwin's and Nietzsche's ideas around survival of the fittest. One of the elements in that too was this, what was the concept of Italy at the time as well? Italy had only existed for some 50 odd years as, as a country at that stage um, and especially having just gone through the uh, having just gone through the war there were still a lot of different positions in Italy as far as um, do we want it to stay as a monarchy do we want it to become a socialist like happened in Russia do we want it to be a number of different systems like was happening in Germany right across the range of political beliefs there were lots of different opportunities well it's very funny you mentioned that because one of the reasons he espoused for being in favour of the war and joining the war on the side of the Allies, being Britain, France and Russia against Germany and Austria, the one of the reasons he gave was that he, he thought that the war would lead to the conditions in Russia for a communist revolution which did in fact take place in 1917. But by the end of the war, he was completely opposed to socialism. The other big part of his post-war doctrine was he wanted to make amends and, and resolve what was known in Italy as the mutilated victory, which was Italy for joining World War I on the side of Britain and France was promised parts of Austria and parts of Croatia, the Dalmatian coast, which is just on the other side of the uh, Adriatic Sea uh, from Italy. And so this, this area had a lot of ethnic Italians, but also had a lot of history with it previously being being owned by Italy. And so that he was determined to get that, that area back. This, I think, quote from Mussolini really sums everything up quite nicely. He says, The fascist state is a will to power and empire. An empire is not only a territorial, military or mercantile concept, but a spiritual and moral one. Just dangerous. When people start talking like that, you, you know something's going to go wrong. The other quote I have from Mussolini just talking generally about fascism is, he says, For fascism, the state is absolute. Individuals and groups are relative. Which kind of plays into the socialist idea of the abolition of the individual and being more about the state being the primary unit in society. And so all these beliefs, he turns into a new doctrine, a brand new doctrine called fascism. So Mussolini truly is the, the father of fascism. He stands for parliament, gets no seats. He gets doesn't get elected. And his, op his opposition is so happy about this, they actually hold a funeral for his the fascist party. Um, to joke about how he got no seats and that his party's dead. But he ends up changing his views again, so he becomes pro-king and pro-church. So now he's completely changed all of his views, and by aligning himself with other right-wing parties, he amalgamates them all together and runs again, gets a bunch of seats in parliament. So now Benito Mussolini is an elected parliamentarian, and his black shirts the, his private army and they keep going around breaking up strikes and bashing socialists and causing a bit of mayhem and by 1923 he stages a coup with the black shirts threatening violence and basically saying we're taking over and Mussolini actually is in Milan so that he can escape to Switzerland if he needs to if it doesn't go well the PM the prime minister says to the king look these black shirt private army guys are trying to take over Rome I want to send the army out what should I do and the king says no you're not allowed I don't want to start a civil war and allows Mussolini to have a very staged march on Rome to mimic Caesar so he comes down from Milan 
joins the Black Shirts. The king offers Mussolini a bunch of positions. Mussolini says, no, no. And eventually the king says, okay, you can be prime minister. Mussolini's just made himself prime minister, but he still has to work within the parliamentary system. His party doesn't have the most seats. So what he ends up doing is decides life would be better if I was a dictator. So he coalesces power. He creates a fascist council that takes decision-making away from the parliament. And then he purges the government of fascists and anti-fascists. So there's an excellent quote from a journalist uh, during the time that says, fascism works because of the lack of fascists. So he gets rid of all the um, ideologically committed fascists and all of the anti-fascists who oppose him and just fills the government with sycophants, people who are loyal to Mussolini personally. His rule becomes completely disconnected from the ideology that he created by purging the party of anyone with fascist leanings. The only thing you need to be to be involved in the Italian government is loyal to Mussolini. If I, uh, if I remember correctly, one of the next stages of his consolidation of power was the uh, agreement that he made with the Pope. That's very clever what he does with the Pope. So as you mentioned earlier, in 1870, the unification of Italy caused a problem with the Pope because the Pope and the Church actually ran certain states in Italy and that they were the government. And when Italy was unified by conquest, it took away these lands from the Pope. This has been an ongoing question in Italian life for over 50 years. Mussolini comes in and says, all right, I will give you a bit of money to pay you for the states that you've lost and we'll let you set up your own country within Rome because the Pope has always declared he needs his own place on earth separate from the laws of men. Mussolini gives the Pope Vatican City, which still exists to this day as a, as a separate country. That silences the Pope's opposition to Mussolini and to fascism. They did a deal. Very much did a deal. In terms of dictator-like qualities, Mussolini's excellent propagandist, absolutely one of the best creators of propaganda. He was really an actor. And actually, after he lost that first election and received no seats, he considered just becoming a, an actor and joining the theatre. If anyone's seen the footage of Mussolini speaking, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. He, he practiced poses and gestures in the mirror. He used to stand up straight, hands on his hips, chest out, and, and chin up. He'd look down on his audience like he was like he was a god and they were filth. Crowns were actually forced into squares because then you'd get excellent footage of people cheering and adoring while he was speaking. And the footage was mandatory to show the footage of his speeches in movie theaters before movies played. And he fostered the image of the ideal man. He was warlike, strong, um, sexual and full of energy and he was often photographed shirtless you know riding a horse or doing some sort of physical task like what often you see images of Putin today he also cleverly paid journalists to come to Italy and write lovely stories about him from Italian taxes he paid the local journalists to write positive stories about him but he did was naturally very charismatic and that definitely helped again with the foreign journalists who came to interview him he had a very disarming smile that get the foreign journalists on side and so at this period people recognized that it was a dictatorship but they weren't people weren't particularly worried about Italy under Mussolini the one of my favorite things that he did actually he made staff in his offices keep the light on all night to make it look like he was working through the night and he was this tireless leader working for the benefit of the people so from the outside you could see that Mussolini's study light was on and Mussolini was always working for for the people of Italy but that wasn't really the case his chauffeur wrote a diary 
And in the diary, he wrote about how Mussolini actually spent two to three hours a day working on matters of state instead of the rest the rest of the day sleeping with various women and having multiple affairs. <laughs> um, luckily, that didn't get out until um, after Mussolini's passing. But um, the reality was very different to what um, he was tried to convey. But at this point, Mussolini is very popular and he's going by the term Il Duce, which means the leader. There's a claim as well that he made the trains run on time, which may or may not be true. Um, making the trains run on time in Italy would be classified as a miracle. But it's certainly the case that the trains ran on time when Mussolini came to power. We're not sure whether that actually has to do with anything that he did or was if it was due to infrastructure projects that were taking place after World War One. So now Mussolini's established control. He needs to fulfill his promise of an empire for Italy. He says that he's the second coming of Caesar. He says he's going to build this great empire and make Italy a significant world power. Now he has to do it. So in 1935... Italy invades Ethiopia. And when Mussolini announces the invasion of Ethiopia, it is actually, and I believe it's still, the biggest staged event in world history. 20 million people are corralled into town squares and his speech is broadcasted in every city in the country. Mussolini invades Ethiopia in 1935 and the scale of the invasion was was incredible. So 500,000 Italian troops march into Ethiopia or sail into Ethiopia. It's a good target because Ethiopia was not already controlled by European power. It also rests between Eritrea and northern Somaliland, which is which are two Italian colonies. By taking Ethiopia, he's able to unite those those lands into one big empire. The army is not very good, basically. What they lack in efficiency, they make up for in ruthlessness. A quarter of a million Ethiopians die during this war, including women and children. Babies' heads are crushed and poisoned gas and chemical weapons are used. It's truly a, a very brutal conflict, which really supports Mussolini's claim that he made earlier when he came to power when he said, blood alone moves the wheels of history. The decision to invade Ethiopia is one of the most significant decisions that Mussolini would make because the move to invade Ethiopia was condemned by Britain, France, and the League of Nations, which was the uh, forerunner to the United Nations. That condemnation pushes Mussolini towards Adolf Hitler, who by then is Chancellor of Nazi Germany. Because prior to the invasion of Ethiopia, Mussolini and Hitler were not friends. Because Germany had eyes on invading Austria, and Italy wanted parts of Austria for themselves. Mussolini saw Germany as a threat, And Mussolini was the only leader before 1939 to actually stand up to Hitler. He placed troops on the Austrian border to prevent Hitler from invading. One story that actually makes me like Mussolini quite a bit is Hitler modelled his leadership after Mussolini and he really admired Mussolini. So Hitler, when he meets Mussolini, asks him for a signed photograph and Mussolini says no. (laughs) (laughs) which is just one of the most Mussolini things to do. And he actually once tried to read Mein Kampf, um, but found it too boring. And he also disliked the whole white supremacy thing, the whole blonde hair, blue eyes, white supremacy, because Mussolini was dark and a lot of Italians are quite dark with dark hair. And he didn't really get the anti-Semitism either. He had a Jewish lover and he, oh, he had, a, I'm sure he had lovers of all types, but one of which was Jewish. He really didn't hate the Jews and he saw Jews as long as they wanted to be Italian and were not opposed to Mussolini, then he saw them as Italian. 
prior to Hitler becoming Chancellor, he looked looked to Mussolini for inspiration. And when we cover Hitler, we'll talk about the coup that Hitler tried to stage in 1923, the, the Beer Hall Putsch. Hitler based that on Mussolini's march on Rome. Um, exactly. He based happened, a lot of things on Mussolini's. Yeah, the, the brown shirts were based on the black shirts, and, and I think you picked up the, the fact that they both served as corporals in the war, the Great War as it was known then, even though they were on opposite sides in that war. All that antipathy towards Hitler changed after the invasion of Ethiopia. Mussolini had hit, reached his peak of popularity, and then by 1938, Mussolini invades Al- Albania. And then in 1939, signs the Pact of Steel with Hitler. This Pact of Steel is an alliance between Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, which obviously has very dire consequences for the rest of the world because that allows Hitler to invade Poland, and Mussolini actually doesn't fight because he knows his army's not ready to fight. He's not going to fight the French or the British. He privately admits he wants Germany to lose the war so that he doesn't have to get involved because production capacity at this point was actually less than in World War I. His economic policies had failed because he just getting in the way of everything, but he genuinely liked his country and didn't want to see them go through a total war and, and the cost of their war. But in 1940, France falls to the Nazis. Everyone's surprised. And Mussolini decides, all right, France has fallen. The British expeditionary force has left Dunkirk and they've gone back to Britain. So he thinks, all right, now's my chance. I should be able to get this empire that I've been promising. He dies that. And even Winston Churchill says of Mussolini that he's trying to get an empire on the cheap. Which is 100% correct. Yeah, Mussolini's entire image is based around warmongering, hyper-masculinity, and expansionism. He can't just sit back and watch Germany do all the things that he had promised. Mussolini declares war on Britain and France. In September, he invades Egypt from the Italian colony of Libya. He wins initially, but is pushed out of Egypt by the British. Um, it's a very significant target because the Suez Canal in Egypt would give access to the Mediterranean from the Indian Ocean. And also, he wanted to take Egypt so that he could be like the Roman Empire, and have Egypt as a colony. Eventually, the Italians are doing so poorly in Egypt that the Nazis have to come in and save them from disaster. And so you end up with Erwin Rommel coming in as a as a general to lead the Nazis in North Africa. So he, he changes target. He says, okay, well, I'll go invade another country. So in late October, he invades Greece from Albania. The Greeks fight really well. And again, the Germans are called in to rescue the Italians from bungling another invasion. One of the elements of the invasion of Greece is that Mussolini didn't tell Hitler in advance. Hitler was furious. And I can see why, because Hitler had planned to invade Russia with Operation Barbarossa. This had to be delayed to autumn. The weather became very wet and then starts leading to the freezing Russian winters. In order to save Mussolini in Greece, he had to delay the Russian operation to autumn. And if you know anything about World War II, you know that Mussolini had just lost the war for Hitler. Mussolini, he's not doing very well. So after this, everything had changed for Mussolini. He's gone from Italy's number one man, everybody loved him, to absolutely hated. So in order to secure the Germans' help, he agrees to send hundreds of thousands of Italians to go fight and die in Russia so that the Germans can invade Russia. And Ciano, who was Mussolini's son-in-law and foreign minister, he, he had actually warned Mussolini about getting involved in the war. He says, we were never treated as a partner, only as slaves, referencing the Germans there. Italy is now an unofficial protectorate of Germany. 
and the people are hungry because the food is being sent overseas and people are getting bombed regularly. Winston Churchill said of the bombing of Italy, people who go to Italy to see ruins won't have to go as far as Naples and Pompeii when I'm done, which is a very ruthless quote. Then by 1943, the Allies, Britain and America had taken Sicily and then were from Sicily going up through southern Italy. So everything had changed for Mussolini by 1943. So King Victor Emmanuel III and the Council of Fascists created by Mussolini removed Mussolini from power. By this point, he's just a shell of his former self. He's arrested and taken to the Alps. And the, his arrest actually did really shock him because he thought he'd just go retire somewhere. And then he's arrested and the king ends up saying to him that he's the most hated man in Italy. But his captivity doesn't last very long. He has a very powerful friend named Adolf Hitler. So SS German paratroopers storm the compound that he's been um, held and take Mussolini to Munich. Hitler's just shocked by what he sees. He, he's just lifeless. And Mussolini says, look, I just want to disappear. I don't want to do this anymore. And Hitler says to Mussolini, look, if you don't go back to Italy and lead whatever part of Italy we can control, I'm going to do to Italy what I did to Poland. Basically, Italy will no longer exist. It will become southern Germany. By this point, it's the saddest part of Mussolini's leadership. Italy's now a puppet state of Germany. Mussolini's now rounding up Jews for concentration camps. In 1944, the fascists that had worked with the king to remove Mussolini from power were all executed, including Ciano, Mussolini's son-in-law. By 1945, Mussolini sees the writing on the wall and tries to escape to Switzerland. So he's got a German escort and they're driving along Lake Como. They're pulled over by partisan fighters because by this point there's effectively a civil war going on within Italy and Mussolini is fighting now with German soldiers against Italians trying to remove him from power. And Mussolini gets in the back of an army truck with German soldiers while wearing a, a Nazi coat and helmet. But of course, he's Mussolini. He's the most photographed man in Italy. And so he's still recognized. The German soldiers, they say, oh no, he's just our drunk fellow soldier. He's, that's not Benito Mussolini. But of course, Mussolini is arrested and taken to a random farm so that he can't be rescued again. A communist by the name of Walter Odissio is sent to execute Mussolini. And his gun actually jams. And so he borrows a machine gun and that obviously does the job. Their bodies are taken to Milan and dumped in the Piazzale Loreto, which is very significant because there was a, um, a bunch of partisan fighters who were killed in that very square previous year by Mussolini. Bodies of the fascist fighters and Mussolini and his mistress are spat on and kicked. One lady goes up to the body and shoots Mussolini in the head five times and say, that's one for every one of my sons that died in your war. And Mussolini eventually is strung up by his boots and his body is generally disrespected in many ways. The treatment of Mussolini's body actually inspires Hitler to kill himself and have his body burned. And that's the end of Mussolini. So that's quite a roller coaster. And of course, then after the war, Italy reverted to a, a democracy and has moved from government to government ever since. Um, but no, no sign of a dictatorship recurring. Of course, his legacy lives on. Mussolini and fascism are viewed very differently inside Italy and outside Italy. See, outside... Mussolini is viewed as Hitler's lackey and fascism because of Hitler mostly is viewed as a is racist and abhorrent. Germany has actually banned fascist parties in Australia, the UK. A mere accusation of fascism will end your political career. But in Italy, fascism is not entirely beyond the pale because the worst crimes can be blamed on Hitler. And fascism in Italy never really had the strong 
racial element that it did in Germany. And you can see this now because there's far-right parties in Italy that are named after prominent fascists of the 30s and 40s. And Mussolini's own granddaughter became a member of parliament. The legacy of Mussolini and fascism is very different inside Italy than it is outside of Italy. So now we have to decide which of these dictators will be eliminated from the competition and which of our dictators will remain in the contest to be crowned the most significant dictator of all time. When we are comparing our two dictators, we are looking at historical significance as well as which of these two dictators was more stereotypically dictatorial they're our two main metrics and when we look at those two certainly Mussolini has had a great impact on history both in terms of World War II as we just saw but also his impact on on Germany inspiring Adolf Hitler even in other parts of the world Islamism ISIS and Al-Qaeda groups are actually also based on European fascism more tied in with religion rather and nationality or race. Mussolini's legacy sadly persists. Uncle Ian, do you want to remind us of the impact of Julius Caesar? Well, I think we look at firstly the the empire that happened after his assassination. The Roman Empire, based in in the Italian peninsula, lasted well into the fifth century, and the the Eastern Roman Empire, based in um, Byzantium which then became Constantinople, which then became Istanbul, lasted um, well, into the, well into the 15th century. The, the empire that was built on Caesar's grave, as it were, lasted for hundreds and thousands of years. In terms of who was the more stereotypical dictator, in terms of the, the strongman tactics and being prepared to purge your, your political opponents, both of them exhibited that characteristic. We probably know more about Mussolini doing that because we've got more sources on which to draw. We've got more contemporary material about Mussolini and we know what sort of a strong man he was. We talked about his deal with the Catholic Church. We know the sort of deals he made to, to gain absolute power in Italy. The well, One of the differences is that Mussolini was able to rule Italy for more than 20 years, whereas um, Julius Caesar's dictatorship actually only lasted a few years before the conspirators decided to, to assassinate him. So in the length of time as a dictator and the, the way in which he was able to consolidate power, Mussolini was certainly more successful. Uh, however, by marching into Ethiopia and then accidentally manoeuvring himself into an alliance with Hitler, he was always going to be, going to be the junior partner in that alliance. And he, he probably realised at the time that Italy was going to get dragged into a European war and it was never ready for it. In terms of legacy, Mussolini attempted to recreate the um, Roman Empire that began really with Caesar. But in contrast, no one's trying to emulate the, the empire built by Mussolini. No one in a thousand years' time is going to be naming themselves after Mussolini. As a leader, particularly in war, he wasn't very unsuccessful. It's difficult to see how we can identify Mussolini as being a, um, a successful dictator or a dictator who... Um, was even able to carry out his plan. All right, well, I think we've decided then that Benito Mussolini will be eliminated in this round and Julius Caesar will remain in the competition to be crowned history's biggest dictator. Congratulations yes. to Julius. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> Odd way to put it, but yes, I, th I think we agree who's the more significant of the two. That concludes round one. 
Next week, next episode, we're heading to Russia where we pit Vladimir Lenin against a mystery opponent, also of Russian origin. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Uncle Ian.